You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Hello, everybody. It's Mike and Kristen here coming at you live from our studio, Hot Jupiter Sounds. It is the middle of June now, almost had the start, but it's the middle and it's beautiful weather. We are safe and sound in our house. Everything's going good. The art gallery's open. What else is on the go, Kristen Ray Harrington? Those are all fun things, and we have some warm weather on the way. Warm weather is coming down the pipe. It felt like winter a couple of nights ago. It was, yeah, it was chilly. And we, uh, now we're on our way to 30 degree days. That's Nova Scotia for you, yeah. huh? If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those Cape Breton colloquialisms. I think it's just a dad joke. There you go. Speaking of Cape Breton, we've got another Islander for a guest today. Yes, a very fascinating lady. Cape Bretoner, born and raised, and spent a large portion of her life in New York. Her name is M.E. Strutmanis. Yeah, she uh, born and raised in uh, Sydney River and is an author now, but had a super fascinating life in between where she lived in Soho, New York. Uh, her ra- second island. Yeah, yeah, Manhattan. Uh, raised six kids, uh, was a teacher, did interior design. Uh, yeah, just a, a, f- a very fascinating life story in general. I felt like I was plugged into a socket in the wall sitting next to her. I was just electrified by her presence and storytelling. She was a very cool lady. She's got lots of great stories and made her uh, a perfect guest and also an awesome author so that's why she she has a a brand new book out i really left feeling from this interview and i've talked about this interview since with some friends how inspired i was by her at at this stage in her life being that her kids have moved away from home and she talks about losing her husband from many years of marriage uh in 2018 but she's really embraced This time in her life, this tragedy, she has found this ability to move on and find all these new adventures. So it was very exciting just to listen to her. And she's an excellent storyteller. So not only does she have great stories, but she tells them so beautifully. And she's living life to the fullest, you know, rolling with the punches, taking things as they come. And that's the best way to live life, I would say. Her new book is called Reverse Ripples. I'm about halfway through and I expect to see this on the big screen one day. Yeah. It would make for a really great movie. Well, the first uh, review on there is from the, is the producer or creator of the show. Of 30 Rock. 30 yeah. Rock. And The Good Place, which we love that show, Oh, they that made The Good too. Place, too? That's yeah, cool. Yeah. Josh Seagal, S-E-I-G-A-L. I hope I'm pronouncing that That's right. Steven Seagal's son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> oh, no one hurt. Oh, my goodness. But it's, yeah, it's an awesome book so far. I love it. It talks about bioluminescence, which it, off another island in Puerto Rico. So she's definitely an island 
soul. Yeah. But uh, we talk a lot about bioluminescence in this episode as Emmy is talking about her book. So if you don't know, I looked this up. Bioluminescence is light produced by an organism using a chemical reaction. So if you've seen it before, and we did in Costa Rica, it's that beautiful blue kind of topaz glow that you'll see in the ocean. Or a firefly would be an example of bioluminescence on land. The fireflies are out right now. That's right. So we're surrounded by it. Sit in the backyard at night when you're in bed and I uh, watch the fireflies go by. That or you hear the June bugs that sound like bullets coming through our window. Yeah, you can't. If you're sitting outside, (laughs) you can't turn any lights on (laughs) because they'll come for you. They are. They're on a mission. For we had sure. one in the house the other day, and uh, he he did not make it out alive. We also had a raccoon in the house the other day. We had a raccoon in our sun porch, and he ate an old uh, Halloween chocolate bar. Yes, you were. I was impressed with your. I was going to say rescue mission, but it was the, giving him the boot. Yeah, it was a a scare tactic. I guess <laughs> I had a. A broom and some get jumping in, around furniture. Get in there and tell him that he, he's got to get out. Mm-hmm. We, sometimes we leave our door open for our cat, George, and we'll have to keep in mind that that raccoon was not at all phased by you screaming your head off at it. Yeah, I got I hit him once. Like, like I was just kind of swinging to give him the, you know, put the fear of God into him, but mm. he, he wasn't too afraid, so I got close enough to give him a little little pop. Well, not, not like a hard one. You but, learned him. He'll yeah, know he, for next he time. Know, he'll know when he sees that, <laughs> he's that afraid big now. fella coming after him that he's got a, he hasn't come back since. That's true. I yeah. don't know if it was a boy. I call him <laughs> he. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'm going to say it was a he. Okay. What was his name? Bobby Joe. Bob, I, knew, I figured there'd be a Bobby in there somewhere. <laughs> Bobby Joe, <laughs> the raccoon. He was, he's. Well, just trying to survive, you know. He was the raccoon likely asleep in our shed. Yeah, it was the same one. He was cute then, just waking up and Well, they're a very rubbing cute his creature. Eyes. Yeah, they are. But they're they're bad. Yeah, they just get into things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, yeah, lots of good people get into things well, too. Well, speaking of which, let's get into this podcast <laughs> episode. Okay, let's uh dive dive right in and uh, yeah, hear some cool stories and yeah, a really kind of uh, fascinating look at living in New York in the 80s and 90s, really. I love it. I love this chat. Hope you guys enjoy it. Cheers, buds. Someone said, uh, I'm a singer, and someone said, when you're singing, you should be smiling. And I don't follow it exactly, but sometimes when I'll see a, a video or something, and I'm, I'm singing, and I just, just your face naturally goes in, the, in that direction when you hit certain notes. Right. And it's kind of, I guess, maybe a natural way your ear muscles tend to go to to get to certain points to sing. But See, that's very curious. I would... I would be, if that was me, I would be interested in seeing me sing it, smiling, consciously smiling, and then singing it consciously not smiling, and is there a sound difference? We can do that I test. I think we right should here. do this test, actually. I'm <laughs> curious now. Sing, sing us a line, 
somber or straight faced mm-hmm. and then sing the same line smiling. Okay. When I was a little bitty baby, my mama would rock me in the cradle in them old cotton fields back home. Okay. okay. And Smile. now smiling. <laughs> When I was a little bitty baby, my mama would rock me in the cradle in them old cotton fields back home. Yeah, I think there's a difference. Uh, well, you certainly, it, watching you visually <laughs> even is a more enjoyable experience <laughs> with you smiling. <laughs> Sang a CCR cover off a very old song there. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Just a random thing that came to mind. Yeah. Do you have a musical family yourself, Emmy? I do. I have absolutely no musical talent. Um, and uh, I've been told that many times. But my husband could have been an opera singer. He had a beautiful voice. And his grandparents on both sides were musical. His, he toured as a child with my, his uncle, who was in a folk band in the 60s. So my husband's on a couple of his uncle's, you know, albums, and all six of my kids are musical. Um, Oldest one plays bass. Next one is a singer, beautiful singer, and he plays guitar and piano. The next one has perfect pitch, and she can play piano, sing. The next one plays saxophone and banjo, and uh, she sings. The next guy's a guitarist, and the last one is a great singer, but she doesn't sing. She's not, you know, doing anything musically, but she is a great singer. So they're all musical. I dreamed of having the Partridge family van (laughs) and taking those six kids on the road with me as the manager. That didn't quite happen. What are your family reunions like? Uh, We haven't really had a lot of family reunions. The last, when I had my children together last, sadly, was my husband's funeral in 2018, Mm because they live all over the country in in the United States. So the last time they were together was 2018, and then my oldest daughter got married during COVID, and they couldn't all be there because of flight restrictions. Um, They had decided to go ahead with the wedding just because they wanted to be married, and so they went ahead with it, but we weren't all in attendance so then last year, finally, restrictions removed, and my uh, younger son got married in Minnesota, and we were all there, and that family reunion was it was just nirvana. As many people as from the family went, and my family history is a little bit different than most people because being adopted, I have my family that I grew up with, and I also have a birth family that I've reunited with or united for the first time with. So my brother, who's a birth brother, came to the wedding. So it was his chance and his wife's chance to meet all of my children. So that and when uh, did you reconnect with that family? I reconnected with the birth family totally by coincidence. And again, it's one of those social media good things. There's Mm -hmm. lots of negativity with social media, and I'm not, you know, a proponent of everyone should be on social media, but at some point in your life, you know, it is nice to have something good happen with social media. So in 2018, as I mentioned, my husband died, and I had a lot of time on my hands because I didn't really have anyone to talk to in the evenings. Back in 2015, I had done my DNA 
because my children refused to wear green on St. Patrick's Day, saying, you don't even know if you're Irish. You can't expect us to wear green. (laughs) They're very vocal kids. They have opinions. They're New Yorkers. So I said, well, I'll do my DNA and I'll prove that I'm Irish because the the family that I grew up with, my father, Sam Murphy, was an Irishman. So I did my DNA and it was questionable, 50% French and 50% Irish-Scottish. That was good enough for me. I wore green. I told them they have to wear green, et cetera. <laughs> but that DNA record stood, you know, is, is in existence. So in 2018, my husband passed away. The time was long. I was bored. I started looking again at the ancestry site, thinking, hey, maybe there's somebody out there I'm related to that I could talk to. Yeah. I had friends, but my friends were giving me a lot of sympathy and, oh, you've been married for 33 years. What are you going to do now? And that kind of thing. So I just started looking, and then I started a new job, and I I had an assistant, and she was very interested in this whole ancestry DNA thing. So one day she says, well, you know, you should look again. Maybe they're on Facebook, you know, your connection. Yes. So I see this person, Anne, is a second cousin to me. And I look on Facebook, and there she is. So I thought, wow, so she's real. She's in Nova Scotia, and I'm in New York in my office. I'm working in transportation for Uber. And uh, so my assistant starts poking around and prodding, and she says, yeah, she's on Facebook. You should send her a message. So I send a very basic message. Hi, this is my name. I was born in 1961 in Nova Scotia. I'm adopted. and I, I didn't have like a birth mother or birth father's name or anything like that. I gave very little information that couldn't come back to hurt me in any way. Yeah. And she writes back, I know exactly who you are. Your father <laughs> and my father were best friends and first cousins. What? That's Nova Scotia. That's right. Nova yeah, Scotia. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, for for almost 60 years, I don't know anything. And now in the course of five minutes... She know she's telling me my father's name, my grandfather's name, and she says you have a sister and brother, and they're both on Facebook. And it was it that's was, incredible. <laughs> so yeah, I and and the not it shouldn't it's it's a vanity thing, but my children all look just like my husband. He was a hundred percent Latvian. His parents were from Latvia. He is very pure Latvian blood in that family. I was the first non-Latvian to marry in. So because his genes are so strong and they all look so alike, all the kids look like him, I didn't have anyone ever that I looked like. No one resembled me in any way, not body type, not anything. So all of a sudden, I had the potential of having someone that I look like. And not only do my sister and I look like it's shocking how much alike we are. We are alike in mannerisms and speech and face shape, body shape, eye color, hair color, teeth. We're the same. And That must have been such a comfort to you. It was a shock. Yeah. It felt very surreal. And I felt a little guilty because to, to be bonding with someone that's not my family that I grew up with. I have a sister. She lives in Anaganish, mm-hmm. and she's my sister. But now I have a sister I look like. It, it was really strange. It was really, really strange and interesting and wonderful. What was the first meeting with your uh, biological sister like? Well, I, there's a, my sister and brother. My brother's in Philadelphia. 
John. Like okay. He, he's not in Canada. Tracy, my sister's in Ottawa, but John married someone from Pennsylvania, so he's an hour away from me in Philadelphia. So we're having all these FaceTimes and group chats and talking, 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 and Tracy's making plans to come to New York because, you know, that's where she would like to come to New York to meet me and meet my kids. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, John and I are talking, and he says, let's just meet halfway. So I didn't realize how competitive John and Tracy were. So and I who was going to meet you first? Right. <laughs> she oh boy, cuz she's already purchased her tickets to come to New York in May, but it's March or April and I'm just driving to Princeton to meet John. Yeah. And when I walked into the restaurant, he just picked a random neutral place. I walked into the restaurant, I looked and I hadn't really seen him other than like one Facebook picture. I looked around the restaurant, and I saw this guy, and I thought, wow, my daughter Claire looks like him. That's so wild. And did I you knew know him they existed? He... Like, did you no, know no, that no, you I had knew... siblings? No, 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 Nothing. no. Okay. Oh, and there are gosh. two others. There's two others. that One of them is here in Nova Scotia. <laughs> so, yeah. It... So, I, John and I instantly felt like we'd known each other all our lives. He's very quirky and funny, and he... and. And and to, then to find out things, like, for instance, my birth father, who died in eight, 1989, was a writer. He wrote books, and he did a, t a radio show for CBC in Ottawa. And he had a—he had—now it would be a podcast, but then it was a little radio segment, yeah. like, talking about—I uh, think it was called The Miser, and it was how to save money and save money on taxes and things. So now he would be podcasting if he were. Mm -hmm. But he had this radio show, and he wrote books, and— he read voraciously, and, like, I, I don't know where I got that. And he did the exact same thing that I would do. I would go to the library every week and get six books, and I would pile them up next to my chair, and I would just read through these books for the week, and then I'd bring them back to the library, and he did the exact same thing. Like, who knew that was genetic? This is... We chatted for a few minutes before we started recording here, and we knew immediately what an excellent storyteller you would be. <laughs> And both excited just to hear where this would go. And you've already started with this incredible story. Yeah, wow. It was, it was, yeah, it was so very interesting. Where were you born in? So I was born in St. Rita's Hospital in Sydney, Nova Scotia. In Sydney? Yeah, okay. in Sydney. So um, I now know more of the story. But, you know, I was adopted through the Catholic Nazareth House Charities. Yeah. My parents tried for 11 years to have children and couldn't. And then in January of 1961, they decided they're going to put their papers in and adopt. So my mother calls those nine months waiting for me, her pregnancy, mm. of, yeah. you know, waiting. And I was, I was born in September, and I was adopted as an infant. Like, I just went straight home with them. And then, um, and, and I had the most, you know, ideal life. Like I, And you grew up in Sydney? I or? grew up in Sydney River, yeah. just a little suburb outside yeah. Sydney. My father worked at the steel plant, and yeah. my mother was a teacher until I came along, and then she was a full-time housewife, baked cookies every day, you yeah. know, that mm. kind of thing. And to, to bring this kind of all around, you, you left Cape Breton at some point to go to New York. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I... Never wanted to travel. We were in a family that had a lot of money for big vacations. We would go to Inganish. We would go to Annapolis Valley and pick apples. We we never really went anywhere. Um, yeah. I, I think I was on two short plane rides 
to Halifax, you know, in my life. I never wanted to go anywhere. Um, money was tight. I knew I had to get a scholarship to university. That was mm-hmm. expected. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't pressured to do so, but I was smart enough to know that if I wanted, you know, to go to a four-year college, I should work hard to do that. Yeah. So I did that, and I went to St. of X. I got a scholarship to go to St. of X. I went to St. of X, and I uh, studied nutrition and consumer studies and minored in business and ended up dating the captain of the basketball team there, and he was from Queens, New York. Okay. And, uh, what a catch, huh? Yeah. <laughs> my, my dad... Yeah, no uh, pun intended. <laughs> my dad played basketball Dal, and the, one of his friends was from Queens who played on Dal with him. Who was it? Uh, they I called bet him, I know him. They called him K.A. Is a, there was initials. Uh, I don't know his real name, but... Oh, uh, interesting. Do you know but what year it would have been? 72? Oh, yeah. too early for me. Yeah, yeah, it was in the 80s, but... Yeah, there were three guys from Queens, uh, Chris Salitri, Mark Brody, and Greg um, Greg Brown. And the three of them were from Queens. And so what we would do is when school would let out in May, we would drive down to Queens and I would work there in the summer and go back in September. Um, I ended up great, having a great job, great relationship with a florist down in New York. And uh, he would fly me down for Christmas. So I was already in love with New York before I moved to New York. Yeah. Um, my father was a diehard New York Yankees fan, and he yeah. was thrilled. Look at this. Right. She got herself a New Yorker. She's moving to New York. He was thrilled. <laughs> uh, I went down to New York after mm-hmm. I graduated from St. of X, and I taught high school, which is what I'd gone to school thinking I would be a great teacher. I taught high school, and I really did not like it. And it was really a hard year of not liking being in the classroom with these high school students and... The relationship wasn't what he wanted or I wanted, and we parted ways. We're still in touch, but and I'm still in touch with all of that team. Um, they just honored Coach Konchalski, who yeah. retired recently. Um, Coach K retired, and it was a big deal. So they all, you know, got together and uh, so yeah. So still friends with all of those guys, and uh, ended up in Queen, ended up in Manhattan because I decided if I didn't like that career. I better go back to school and get a different one. Mm-hmm. So I moved into Manhattan and uh, went back to school for interior design, and that's that's what I did for a few years. So I can't imagine two places being more different than Sydney, Cape Breton, and Manhattan, New York. What was the allure? Sydney's the big city, you know. <laughs> that's true. Both metropolis. Being from, yeah, in, that's true. Being we'll from Inverness that. there, we would go <laughs> to Sydney. Shooting a drag yeah. on Charlottesville. Yeah. I mean. Oh, my soul. Uh, but, yeah, what, what was it when you landed in New York that you felt connected to, having grown up in a place so different? I think, well, all right. My mother would all, well, like, I, when I started going to New York in college, I would come back to Anaganish with all the clothes and shoes and boots and leather jackets and things that I would buy in New York. And I would come back. And I remember one winter specifically, I was in Cape Breton and I was going out and I was wearing tall boots and a purple corduroy mini skirt, which was fine back, you know, in the early 80s. People, that's what people were wearing. And my mother said, Are you wearing that? And I said, obviously. And she said, well, what will people say? And I said, well, what people are Mm going to, you know, and she said, well, you know, people are going to see you. And I said, 
yeah. So that kind of stuck with me. What will people say? Because I didn't frankly care what people said. Yeah. And uh, and then when I would get to New York, there was all this anonymity. I could wear what I wanted. Mm. And I don't know these people who might say something. So it kind of freed me up from the... Look at the purple skirt on M.E. Jesus. Lord <laughs> <laughs> Tundra Who does she think she is? Wearing a purple corduroy skirt like that. I'm so proud of, of my purple skirt. Of course. I loved it. This example is so relatable. My <laughs> very first time in New York, I was actually, I was a part of the Model UN group in my mm-hmm. university, which is a little bit nerdy, but I loved it. And we went to New York, our delegation, and I specifically brought an outfit that I would not feel comfortable mm-hmm. wearing in Halifax. And I went to the art gallery, and I specifically remember nobody looking at me. <laughs> you you and feel how so special that was exactly. But, yeah. I loved that feeling, and and you using the word anonymity is often how I've described that experience. Mm-hmm. And what made me fall in love with that city was that feeling of such freedom to be myself and express myself that. For whatever reason, I couldn't get over that self-consciousness here in Nova Scotia. Right. I care less now just with age and, mm-hmm. you know, you, those things you give up on. But it was such a stark contrast to that self-confidence I had in myself. And I think that the second part of that is we learn not to judge others. Yeah. We're not going to look at what someone else is wearing and say, what what is she doing? Because we know it's it is freeing to be able to choose what you want to wear. And it's not about anybody else. It's just about you feel comfortable. That's what you're wearing. Such that's a, it. Yes, that's so true. So I loved that. I had a unique experience, though, because I, when I was living on Long Island teaching high school, living in a, a rental house, beautiful house, and one of my best friends was a teacher, when this relationship exploded and we sat parted our ways and Mark went off to do his thing and I was now sort of in limbo. It's summer vacation. I, I'm finished teaching. I have no relationship. I want to go back to school. I don't know how to do that because I am Canadian living in the States. Mm-hmm. I had to get an, a student visa. Like I had to do certain things to make it happen. And so my friend Jean said, look, we have that ensuite. You can you can live there and go to school, commute, take the Long Island Railroad into Manhattan, which was daunting. I mean, I I really wasn't used to that. I was driving to teach. So now I knew I'd have to learn the subways. I'd have to learn the Long Island Railroad. So the first day I went into school, I, I got the F-1 visa. And actually, the Nova Scotia government gave me a grant to go back to school which I thought was really a terrific thing at the time. Go back even though it was in, in, in a different States, country. In a oh, different country. Wow. Okay. My father p- pulled some strings or knew somebody, mm-hmm. and lo and behold, I had like a two or $3,000 bursary mm-hmm. to further my education mm-hmm. in New York. So that helped me, even though I'd saved some money when I was teaching, so that helped me. And I knew that I could rent something if I could find something. Naively, I thought I could rent something. I didn't know anything about New York real estate. So I went to school the first day, took the railroad in, and it was okay. 40 minutes on the train. I found my way to the school on 56th Street. And uh, the dean of the school was there and welcomed to our international student, of which I was the only one. (laughs) 
And even though I'd been in New York already, I was considered international because of the visa. So I said to her, look, I think I need to move into Manhattan. And she, of course, rolls her eyes like, yeah, that's going to happen. And I said, well, if you hear of any place for rent or even if I had to have a roommate or, you know, whatever, I'd, I'd be happy to have that. And just let me know if you hear of anything. And so um, the next day or the day after, I wasn't around to receive a phone call. In the age of cell phones, you had to be there. So someone's going to write down a message. So my friend Jean says, I got a message from someone named Eugenia, and she is looking for someone to live in her place. And I said, okay, that sounds intriguing. Let me call Eugenia back. And I call Eugenia back, and she says that she's a flutist, and she travels with a symphony, and when she's away, she needs someone to stay at the apartment with her two daughters. And she said, but let me be clear, I have a nanny and I have a housekeeper. I'm just looking for a responsible adult to be there at night. It's, you know, if this is something you think you'd like to do. So I said, sure, I'll come and see you. So I go into the city to meet Eugenia, Eugenia Zuckerman. She's a, a CBS music correspondent and a flutist. And she had just gotten divorced from her husband, was Pincus Zuckerman, the violinist, famous violinist and concert, you know, maestro. Mm. So uh, I meet her and her gigantic, make my loft look small, gigantic, big apartment on Riverside Drive. Loved the two daughters. They were adorable. And uh, I moved in and I had my own basically apartment with everything in, you know, my own ensuite, bedroom, workroom, drafting table for me to work, do my work for school, everything on my own. And all I had to do was sleep there the nights that she was out of the country. Great so deal. That, that was a great deal. So that worked out perfectly. And I ended up having my wedding reception in that apartment. The two girls were my flower girls, and I'm still in oh. touch with them. Ariana's an opera singer. And Natalia's a musician. She just came back from Japan. Like, it's it was just sort Incredible. of a synergy. Incredible. I'm going to sit this whole interview with goosebumps, I can tell. <laughs> just every, every word is so exciting. What age were you at this point? So I would have been 22, 22, yeah. 23 then when I, when I was there. It was... Um, Mid eighties, and we used to hang out. It's a, it's such a New York thing, and I know you know that sitting out on the stoop, mm. people usually have small apartments. You all go out to the stoop at night, and we would, I would just walk around the corner. Like Kevin Bacon lived around the corner and would always walk his dog, so I would <laughs> I would walk around with Kevin Bacon, and you know it was like a. You got one degree to Kevin Bacon then. Oh yeah, or maybe <laughs> <You know>? two, maybe <laughs> two, but um. And the um, and and life is full of crazy coincidences. The one thing about New York that I know now from living there is that it's not as big as people think it is. You have communities. I would sit on the stoop with my friend Frankie, who was a club manager. He ran a club downtown, and he would always say, "You know, come down. We need pretty young girls to, to frequent the club to get people to, yeah. you know." So comp drinks just come on in you know come to the club any night so i would sit on the stoop and this other girl debbie would sit there and my friend stephanie and so we you know once in a while we'd go down to the club and debbie never came with us like i never we were just stoop friends we weren't friends stoop that went shopping friends. together yeah. but anyways you know so so but debbie was cool she was always there everyone you know was hanging out and um you know, Frankie was a great guy. To get into free to a club when you're a student is a big deal. 
And these are these are rocking clubs like Paul Schaefer's there with his entourage after the Letterman show. And like it was a scene, um, you know, I'd say, who's in tonight? He said, oh, you know, Richard Gere is over there. I had a confrontation with Tom Cruise. Like he got <laughs> mad at me because I didn't know his movie. And, you know, like I was, was tipping cows at 22. That was my <laughs> youth. So yeah, well, this, carry but on. This, but this was an, sort of an unreal scene for me. I'm going to school during the day. I make sure I'm home at night if Jeannie's in Switzerland doing a concert or something. And, you know, so this was my life. And it wasn't. And one of my funniest moments was when my year flash years later, and it's my son is in eighth grade, the musician, and it was winter and it was really snowy. And he said, we're having a concert tonight. Will you come? And I said, wow, it's so snowy. And he said, I know, but people might not show up because of the weather. So, you know, I hope you'll come. So I said, okay, fine. I reluctantly came and I sat in the first row and the band leader, the teacher, Roy Nathanson, his name is, he comes out and he says, so the students have been practicing for the last couple months for this concert. And then I'm realizing this is a serious concert. And he said, they've been practicing with our guest singer tonight. You know, everyone knows her. Please welcome Debbie Harry. And I look at her and she walks on stage and she goes, Mary Ellen? I said, Debbie? And that was Debbie from The Stoop, was Blondie. Uh. And I had no idea. What? It was crazy. It was just one of those crazy moments in the first row. And I look up, and she's looking at me. And my son is with his electric guitar behind, wondering, why is she talking to my mom? And it was just <laughs> <laughs> one of those crazy New York moments. So, yeah. That's surreal. <laughs> What what university or school did you go to in New York? Uh, New York School of Interior Design. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I it was my dream. I had applied to the new school mm-hmm. and oh, was wow. accepted. Yes, but I couldn't afford to go. Right. Was my story when yeah. I was a a young university student. But that was always my dream. Yeah, so the I, new school is fantastic, and they have all new buildings. It's so central. It's, yeah, and, it's yeah, beautiful. Wild. Yeah. When did you meet your husband? So I met my husband. Um, I had I'd been living and working as an interior designer. Now I I'd graduated from school and I was working, and I um, met uh, a gentleman who was very interested in me, and we started dating. And it looked like it was getting serious. So he came home to Cape Breton with me for Christmas, which is ironic because he was Jewish, and you know. But anyways, he came to Cape Breton, and my parents had arranged two extra tickets to go to the Wiseman's Youth Center New Year's Eve dance. So we all went to the dance together, and he proposed to me in front of all of the Wiseman in Sydney River in Westmount. So I agreed to marry him, and I, I don't know why I did that. I did that because of the pressure of everyone watching. Yeah. So we went back to New York, and he lived in New Jersey, and I lived in New York, and he would... He had given me a car for Christmas and, uh, you know, very, he was very wealthy, older guy. And um, the April 22nd, 1986 was his 30th birthday. And I went over to his condo and I drove my Porsche that he'd given me over to my his condo. And he was cooking a steak on his barbecue on his balcony. And I don't eat meat. I didn't eat meat then and I don't eat it now. And I said, well, what am I going to eat? And he said, you know, I'm having a hard time tonight. I just want to be alone. And I just had this glimpse of this will be my future with mm-hmm. this man who needs time alone. He had everything going for him. And 
he's got one steak on the grill, and I took off the ring, and I said, you know, I think we're done. And I went downstairs where my girlfriend Joanna was at a party, and uh, I said, Joe, I'm here, and I just broke up with my guy, and I'll drive you back to the city when you're ready to go. And she said, okay. And then I saw my husband across the room with a drunk girl hanging on his leg. And I went over and I gave him my business card. And I said, if you can get rid of her, please call me. <laughs> and that night. What I a line. <laughs> <laughs> and that night I drove back to New York City with Joanna. And when she got home, there was a message on her answering machine that her father in England had passed away. So I spent the whole next day with her and drove her to the airport Sunday to go back to England. And then Sunday, I got back to my place, which was Eugenia's apartment, my own little wing. And uh, Vincent, my husband, had left a message on my answering machine. You know, this is Vincent from the party, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And I called him back and I said, why did you wait so long? And he said, I didn't want to seem too eager. And I said, did you get rid of her? And he said, she was just an evening date. Yeah, I got rid of her. And we decided two weeks later to get married. And that was 33 years together. Oh, my gosh. I I just, I know your book is not about your life. And we're no. going to talk about your book, but it very well could be. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you'll write a biography at some point. Uh, yeah. I mean, life was, life was fun. And life in New York City, there was always something happening. Yeah. I think that's, but also wherever you live, you do have to love it. Like if you don't love it, go somewhere else. Did you find, so when we travel to big cities, New York in particular, we've been a number of times, Mike and I just absolutely love it as well and, yeah. and can appreciate the vibe there, we'll mm -hmm. say. Yeah. But did you, living there, does it, did you eventually just work yourself into a routine, a day-to-day -day where it felt like, okay, this is just normal status quo each day? Yeah, or I does it like invigorate you <clears throat> living there the same as it would traveling? When I first went there the very first time, I, I was exhausted. And I thought, how do people do this? Navigating, crossing the street, navigating the crowds and the smells and the noise. Like, how do people do it? Mm -hmm. And then somehow you just sort of shellac yourself with and protect your energy and not waste energy on stuff that just doesn't matter. You know, like... Like caring about your purple skirt. <laughs> yeah. You, there's a lot of things that you just, you let go. You have to have this uncanny sense around you all the time what's happening. You have to be alert. You have to be careful now, especially with bike messengers everywhere, you know, and, and bikes just is whizzing by and things like that. But there's always something to watch out for. You know, in the 80s, it was, there was more crime, more pickpocketing, more, mm. you know, different things like that. But there's always something. Um, so at first, you know, you learn to just protect your energy and then you're not exhausted. And then once you're not exhausted, you start to embrace this vibe and, and feel it. Um, my husband and my, I planned to move out when the oldest one needed to go to what they say in the States, middle school, but junior high school. We thought we don't want them you know, kids are yucky and hormonal and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff's happening in your teens. So let's move out to the suburbs when the kids, when the oldest one turns 10, 11, let's get them out. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't go. 
we they, said we're thinking of moving out of the city. No, no, we're not moving. We have all our friends here. We have our yeah. soccer teams. We have our music lessons. We have everything in the city. Mm-hmm. And we didn't move, and it was the best thing ever for them. My husband, who grew up in the city, would have loved to move out to the suburbs or live in Sydney River, where mm-hmm. I grew up. Right. He would have loved that. So he was from there, and that's why— Chicago okay. and then New York City. He'd only ever lived in a city. Mm-hmm. And we had a brief few years in Toronto um, at the beginning of our marriage. You know, He said, well, let's go somewhere. Let's start fresh. So we moved to Toronto— and we lived there for a few years, had a few kids, and then back to New York because I really wanted to go. And his father, you had mentioned earlier, was the artistic director of Playboy mm-hmm. at one point. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. So that's what he did after college. My father-in-law had been in the Army, had gone to the Art Institute of Chicago for yeah. for art, and then got hired at Playboy. So he had he had a good job. They had a beautiful house, and they you know had a great life. But... You know, it was a very demanding life for a man with two small children. And um, so, yeah. (laughs) And what did your husband do? So he worked in sales. He was doing sales and marketing and some, it's, it's such a different world before, you know, computers, like digital, like he would have been great at like, you know, Mm. post-production and things like that, but that wasn't really, you know, a thing so he was doing sales, and then he became a stockbroker, um, took his Series 7 license, and started do, working for a company that happened to be in the World Trade Center. So he worked um, there, and then, of course, there was 9-11, and then he went back to sales after that. Yeah. So. Gosh. So how did writing come into your life we you're very natural storyteller excellent storyteller and i know this is at the root of the expression of that art Mm -hmm. why why writing what did what's that storyline look like for you well i started in saint of x and i had a little book of poetry published and i started writing poetry because people always said i hate poetry yeah (laughs) you know oh poetry so I, I wanted to write poems that were interesting, and so that's what I did. And then when I was in Toronto, I had a really good friend who was from Croatia, and she had escaped war in that part of the world. And she started telling me all about her life, and her life was so interesting, and I hadn't really ever been anywhere. I hadn't been to Europe. I hadn't been anywhere. And so I started writing her story down and I, I would spend my lunch hour at my desk where I worked. I worked for a, a big interior design furniture place in Toronto, Bauhaus uh, Designs, and at, I would spend my lunch break writing her story. And then I would see her in the evening and say, tell me more. And I wrote the whole story. So I basically wrote a novel about Croatia from her point of view. And I didn't do anything with it. I still have it in a binder. I typed it on a typewriter and printed out the pages. Mm. Um and that got me thinking about how everyone has a story. Yeah. So in 2015, when I did my DNA, and I did all the children's DNA, and I know that a mother and father both contribute 50% to the children, but all of my children were 78 or 79% Latvian, which I couldn't understand because, you know, it should be 50% and mm. 50% me, but they're genetic makeup, and hence they all do look like them. So I wrote a memoir um, about myself and about my my life as an adopted, as a wonderfully happy 
well-adjusted adopted child so that my children would have that book. Yeah. And they showed it to friends and they showed it to friends' parents and everyone liked it and said, wow, this is such a nice read. It's so fun. You know, you should write. But life was busy and chaotic. And then when my husband died and I had all this time on my hands, I... And also I had dealings with the medical examiner of New York City. My husband had died of a heart attack suddenly with no history of heart problems. And I came home from work and there he was. And so the first thing that happens in that case is the detectives come to ascertain has there been a crime. Yeah. So we went through this whole process. And finally, um, I f found my husband at nine o'clock at night and at four in the morning, his body was removed. And we have all been interviewed and we have been vetted that we didn't kill him and, you know, nothing. And then the coroner came at one in the morning and she apologized for being, you know, taking so long. But she had seen nine other people that night. Gosh. That she, and so it just started me thinking about the medical examiner's office and how crazy busy they are. And I figured they wouldn't. You know, if I called them, they wouldn't even answer. And I called up and they said, oh, Mrs. Stromanis, yes, we'll have him get right back to you. And he did. The medical examiner called me like three or four times, sent me the autopsy, called and said, if you have any questions, please call. Here's my cell number. The treatment in New York City when 100 people a day die was shocking to me because I thought this is an anonymous city. They're not going to know me, let alone pronounce my name. Yeah. And I, I just was, it was just such a pleasant experience during this awful time that I thought, wow, I'd really love to write something about this, but I don't know what, you know, I'm not going to write about my husband dying. I, I don't know what I'm going to write, but I, I'm storing all this information. And um, then, uh, but if I go back a few years, and two, we have a house in Puerto Rico, and we've always had it since my husband and I were first together, 1988. We have this house in Puerto Rico on a little island called Vieques, which is the setting for the book. And that's where my kids go to their bungalow or their cottage. It happens to be a, an airline, you know, triple flight away, but that's where we would go in the summers, and that's where we take the kids and their friends so in 2009, Marvel Comics came to the island and did an issue of Spider-Man fighting a bioluminescent monster. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, I was, we were all unhappy about that because bioluminescence is a magical thing that's in Vieques, and it's not a negative. But, but Marvel made it a negative, that this bioluminescent monster was a negative. Yeah. And I thought, I'd like to write something magical and good about bioluminescence. So that and then this medical examiner situation with my husband and all this time on my hands that I used to have someone to do things with and talk to. My kids are all living their lives and half of them don't even live in New York. So I um, have a friend who was a writer, Josh, and he was writing, he had just finished writing 30 Rock so he wrote 30 Rock and Monk and different shows like that. And now he was living out in L.A. So I pitched the story to him and he said, sounds great. I love it. And he'd been to my house in Vegas. So mm. he said, write the story, get it published, and then we'll talk. So I wrote it and I wrote it in Cape Breton. And, and that's how it came to be. 
Oh my gosh. And okay, so what's the title of your book and your publisher? So the working title when I was writing it was 18 degrees north because that is the latitude, longitude of the island of Vieques. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought of it as the whole time. What what magic is going to happen happens in Vieques. But then it sounds like a, you know, a travel book mm-hmm. or a, you know, geography book. So that title was out the window. I was on Facebook one day, and um, one of my best friends growing up and still is a lobster fisherman in Inganish, and his his name's Bobby Nolan, and known him forever since the crib, and always have been in touch, and our kids in touch with each other. And um, I saw on his somebody named Vanda had commented on something. And I I looked at her picture, and she looked intriguing, and I clicked on her, and I see she's a publisher. So it's Purple Porcupine Publishing is her company. And I had been in Cape Breton, and now I was back in New York, and I'd finished the book. I know I think it was the holidays, Christmas holidays, and I just sent her, I, I friended her, or I messaged her as not a, you know, not a friend, and said, look, I've written a book, and I just want to ask you a couple questions about how to proceed from here. Mm-hmm. And I listed a few questions, and she got right back to me with exactly, you know, what I was asking, like how how much, how many chapters would a publisher need to see? What's the best way to pitch your, you know, do you write a like a summary and different things? And she got right back to me, very professional, like really on point, and you know, phenomenal small publishing company that's growing but I was just really impressed with her and I thanked her and that was it and then like she sent another message something I'd be happy to read it and give my opinion and I thought my god this person is a godsend okay and so I agonized over what do I send because I still really don't know so I picked a chapter that I liked and then I picked a chapter that tied the book together and whatever and I randomly sent it off crossed my fingers and didn't expect to hear anything and she was very effusive and wrote back, I love it. I love this story. I want to publish it. And that's how it happened. Incredible. And we understand that your publisher might live handy to us. She does. And that's yeah. a, that's another one of those coincidences. One of these serendipitous like, moments for yeah. us to be connected. Right. How how did you find out about our podcast or hear of us? Um, Friends with Nancy Reagan. Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Again, small world and yeah. just a Nova Scotia world. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is out now? The book is out. It came out on May 27th. It's on Amazon and yeah. Barnes and & Noble. Um, and it's, you know, the thing about the book is it's not a, it's a, you know, everyone talks about genres in publishing. Mm-hmm. Like what I like to read is Lee Child, Jack Reacher series. I love Patricia mm-hmm. Cornwell, uh, Greg Isles, uh I love Stephen King. You know, I I like books like that with lots of meat in them. This is a story that you you could read, you know, at the beach or, you know, with a cup of tea. It's not a thriller. You're not going to, you know, go to sleep like dreaming bad dreams about it or anything like that. Mm. It's it's a story that unfolds on an island and it's, you know, it's the two places I know, Vieques, Puerto Rico and New York City. Mm-hmm. So, it's a different genre than what I read, which is strange. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's it's magical, 
realism, suspense, but it's it's not what I read, but I love the story, and it's apparently what I write. So when I had the story in my head, her the the main character, her life goes on and on and on, and there is going to be a conclusion. But this book is the first third of the three books that I would like to write to have a conclusion. Okay. So um, I'm halfway through the second book. Nice. Uh, just because, not that it's not finished, it, it's finished and it's complete, but there's more things that need to happen to uh-huh. her um, just to, to round it out. And you said that you might be looking to get it turned into a show or a movie. I think it would translate very well. And very easily yeah. into, um, you know, a TV series. Like, I would be interested to see what happens next. Yeah. Like, Stranger Things, but it's not that strange. Yeah. But, you know, and that kind of got kooky. Like, that kind of went a little off the rails. But but I loved it. And I watched it. So When you're envisioning that being turned into something, do you have people in mind to that would be playing the characters? You know, the people have asked me that, and the two main characters are very different people. The New York girl is is the embodiment of two of my daughters. Okay. My parkour girl and my long, lanky, 5'11", skinny, modelish one. Mm-hmm. So that I've combined those two girls into... Um, uh, the, one Your of the, the main characters, the leading lady, Pia, in the book, Cassiopeia. And then the other person who's her best friend, but very, very different, is the embodiment of two people, one of my daughter's friends and a person that I know. And I put them both into the shorter stature, darker um, girl that's the uh, the, the sidekick, I guess. And uh, so I don't know. But they're very, very different and very good friends. And And I like that because I think that you don't you shouldn't be like your friend you should be very different and mm. and bounce your ideas and do different things because your friends are you know completely different from you i think it just gives us more adventure and more experiences in life to have someone yeah. that's so not what you would pick just, and your reader would see themselves in those different characters yeah. i imagine with the contrast mhm you've pulled from real experiences or people in your life to develop your book Mm -hmm. do you find that as you're navigating through the world that your mind is looking for those creative inspirations always yeah i think that anybody artistic is Mm -hmm. and i think that if we all just slowed down a little bit and just took in every single day and every person that we know or in every encounter that we have and just enjoy it and savor it a little bit more you know, then we would all have more of a wealth of things that we can talk about or, you know, just have discussions. And that's one thing that New York did give me. Like every one of my children, their school experience blew mine away. And I loved school. Mm. I, I was like a dean's list, you know, overachiever, always homework. I would never have handed in a paper late. I, you know, I really loved school. I loved the, everything about it. I loved college. I never missed a class. I wanted 8 a.m. classes. I was there. I was taking notes. Um, and But my senior trip in high school, well, it wasn't really a trip. It was a field trip. 
Um, so I'm a senior, and we're getting on the bus, and we're going to see the Allen Ice Company make ice blocks. Yeah. This is in Cape Breton. Yeah. Yes. This is in Cape Breton. <laughs> in case that wasn't clear. And that clear. was thrilling, and I've never sure. forgotten it. That yeah. was a great experience. Like, I loved it. But, you know, my da- one of my daughters went to Greece. One of my daughters went for six weeks to Mozambique to <laughs> to work with the free the new free government and do art and music among the people of Mozambique and come back and present it at the UN. I went to the Helen Ice Company. When I, when I was in grade six, uh, growing up in Cape Breton as well, we went on a ski trip and this was amazing. We went to uh Kepik, which I think sure. is uh I think it's outside Antigonish. I can't remember. Yeah, it is. Um, I've skied Kepik. <laughs> but that was like a huge thing, like going right. about almost two hours away and doing something that was out of the ordinary. But on the way back, uh, our bus got pulled over by the cops because one of the kids in our class stole someone's shoes from a locker. <gasps> and uh, then he got in trouble and then... We weren't allowed to go on class trips again. So I that was the only class trip I ever went on. So was, that's very poignant. Yeah, in grade six. Yeah. So, uh, grade seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. It didn't go anywhere. <laughs> right. But see, you have that. And that's, <laughs> yeah. and that's a funny story. <laughs> that, and it's yeah. a true story. It's very Cape Breton. These memories sure. stand out for you. Yeah. 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 That's wild. And then if you were to tell, tell that at a dinner party, then the next person's going to talk about their trip. And then... You know, yeah. like, and and that's all great stuff. I, I remember my trip to the Allen Ice Company, and I I think about it once in a while. It's no longer there. But recently, when I was coming up to Halifax, I was driving with my guy in the car, and he goes, do you know what used to be there? And I said, the Allen Ice Company. He goes, I'm impressed. <laughs> but I didn't go to high school with him. He didn't take that field trip with me. You know, like I, this is a. This, this must is have been guy. quite a spot. This ice company. Well, there's a pond, and the Bedora Lakes are there, and you're driving towards North Sydney, and there's this big area where it was. Yeah. Um. You know, they made blocks of ice as a, you know, that I don't know, it's, it's stuck with me. But sure. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. So now you're back in Cape Breton. I understand. I'm back in Cape Breton. What? What? So okay, the allure to the big city. You spent a lifetime there. I did. Had all of these amazing adventures, education, experiences. Yes. What drew you back home? Well, I'd always come back home with the kids because my parents were still in Sydney River in the same house, and my friend was across the street that I grew up with. That. Uh, the book is dedicated to her. Mm. She's uh, still a good friend and uh, the best friend. So I'd always come back. And then in 2015, we put my father's ashes in the ground with my mother. And I thought, that's it. I won't be back. Um, in 2019, I had my 40th high school reunion. Wow. Yeah. 40th high school reunion. And I didn't want to go. My girlfriend and good friends were in Toronto. They're all coming down for it, and they're saying, you have to come, you have to come. And I said, I don't want to go because the last couple I'd been with my husband, mm. and everyone's going to say, where's your husband? Yeah. And, you know, and and I'm going to start to cry and say, well, he died last year. You know, and I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put myself or anyone else through mm. this awful thing of 
you know, over and over and over, over and over and over yeah. at the reunion for a three day weekend. And they said, no, 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 we got you. We'll be with you. And they'd been with me in New York, you know, when we had my husband's funeral and everything. So they said, come on, just come. So I said, OK, fine, I'll just come. And then through a series of different events, I ended up messaging uh, the guy that I was seeing in high school. And he didn't go to my high school, but we had dated and he had actually taken me up to St. Avex. And I had messaged him about something completely different and irrelevant to my husband's death or anything just in life in his family. I needed to know something. Mm -hmm. And we spoke a couple times in 2018. And then in 2019, I said, hey, if you're around, I'm going to be in Sydney for this high school reunion. He said, oh, sure, I'll pick you up. We'll go to lunch or something. I said, "Okay, great. And again, I'm a recent widow. I'm not thinking anything like that. And he picked me up and we went. We spent the afternoon together, the only free afternoon I had. And I mean, I wouldn't say like, oh, it was amazing or anything, but it was really neat to see him. And he had built a house on the Bredore Lakes and told me about his kids. And I told him about mine. And I went back to New York and we became Facebook friends at that point. And so we would comment on each other's photos. And then um, it just kind of escalated that I went to Puerto Rico that uh, Labor Day weekend. I always go. It's my birthday weekend. I go every year. That's my treat to myself. And I've been doing it for 30 years. Um, and he commented on the post, sure looks nice. I'd love to go there. And I said, sure, I'm going in whenever. Why don't you join me? And he said, okay. And I was <laughs> like, did I just ask yeah. this man? Did like, he just I'm, say yes, too? Yeah. And I'm <laughs> still crying every day about my husband and about my life. Like, I'm trying to keep busy. I'm writing. I'm working. Um, now I have a sister and a brother that I'm communicating with. Like, I have all this going on. But then all of a sudden he said, yeah, okay, what are the dates? And I I was shocked and more shocked when he bought the tickets. Like, just it was just like a leap of faith on both of our. And uh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with him in Cape Breton. Wow. <laughs> How have you learned to let all of this magic into your life because i don't believe people live their lives in such a way without intention or purpose this is this has come to you all of these stories for a reason do you feel like there has been something about the way that you have lived that has welcomed all of this into your ether i really think it's my upbringing in cape breton mm. i think that we are we are Cape Bretoners, mm -hmm. so trusting and so talented and so friendly and so welcomed everywhere we go, you know, as a Cape Bretoner, like it's, and it also as a Nova Scotian and also as a Canadian, and I've been a Canadian for a really long time and an, an American for only a few years, but um, I feel like there's something very inherently special about Cape Bretoners that we don't have we've don't look like we have a lot going on in Cape Breton, but truly we do. There's more talent in Cape Breton than I can than I've ever met in all of New York City. There's more willingness to put yourself out there and to put yourself out for other people. So giving is the natural Cape Breton way, whereas that's not the yeah. way of the world. And I think that and in my case, especially because being adopted and being adopted by these special parents that I had, 
I was always chosen. I wasn't yeah, just, you know, right. I gave birth to my children and I loved them, mm-hmm. but I know I didn't love them at the level that my parents loved me because they couldn't have children and then they had this child. Yeah. And I was sickly and unwell. The doctor would come every day to see did I survive the night. I was sick for the first few years of my life. I was born premature. I was tiny. I was unhealthy. I had pneumonia and bladder infections. I was constantly sick, constantly not a healthy child. When I stopped being unhealthy, which was around four or five, the tonsils came out and then my illness stopped and I've never been sick a day in my life since. I've never even mm. had a head cold since. But for those first few years, it was touch they and go. They squeezed it all into a yeah, few years of lifetime. Got it all in and that's it. Um, but I think just growing up in Cape Breton was such a gift, oh, wow. a gift I couldn't give my children. And I say that to them. I'd say, I want you to understand what it was like to go outside and play and just come home when it's dark to go build a tree fort in the woods. Nobody owns these woods. We're just in there playing. You know, uh, all the things that I did, you know, going in creeks, fishing. My father had fishing gear in the trunk of the car. Every time we'd pass a lake, he'd stop and we'd cast our lines mm-hmm. into Blackett's Lake or wherever, in, in English town wharves. You know, we yeah. didn't go straight to the ferry. We stopped at the wharf. Maybe the mackerel are running. Like, it was idyllic. And so because I couldn't give that to my children, I'm raising them in New York City. And that was very freaky for me. I didn't take the bus. I walked to school. Mm -hmm. You know, now my kids are getting on big yellow buses and, you know, being dropped at this school, then that school, then that school. It's a whole different ballgame. So, uh, yeah, being a Cape Bretoner, boy, that's 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 a beautiful, beautiful answer. Mike and I recently were speaking about our experience having been evacuated from the wildfires and how we can't imagine anywhere else in the world where the response to that and the support that we felt would ever exist. We were overwhelmed at times by this outpouring of love and offers for us to, you know, everything from can we bring you food to do you want to move in with us? You right. know, strangers, strangers were offering, offering yes. to us. Come stay in my spare room. Do you need food? What can I make for you? Just the the East Coast in general. Maybe maybe it's a Canadian thing. I'm not sure, but I know for sure Nova Scotia, especially that people are so willing to go out of their way for other yeah. people. And that's the thing. They go out of their way. Yeah. And it's not a burden. It's not an encumbrance. It's just doing what they want to do like from the goodness of their heart yeah yeah it really is i mean even vanda proposing to me that any book sales through her website five dollars of every book sale will go to the wildlife relief of course it should my gosh yeah i mean you know everybody everybody that i've talked to about the wildfires and about them happening and even in new york you know what can we do like is there a is there a site i said go look it up i'm sure there's lots mm-hmm. of ways to donate the red cross is always and yeah. i and i experienced the same thing after 911 absolutely yeah. you know my husband that was a very bad day you know he went to work and we didn't know if he was coming home and um you know the outpouring in New York for first responders and for people and families and things like that. FEMA was there. Um, and, you know, I experienced the same thing. Um, even 
my family and my relatives, um, my cousins, I have cousins in Sheet Harbor, lots of cousins in Cape Breton, you know, calling, you know, come up here, stay with us. Mm-hmm. And that's not me. That's me and my seven other fam- immediate family members. Yeah. I mean, I had six little kids and a husband, and they're saying, we have room, just come and get away. We we were given a house in Fire Island for a week. We were given a beautiful house and a vineyard for a week. Like here, just, and we yeah. had a place to go. We had the house in Puerto Rico, but flying wasn't necessarily what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So people were just saying, here, this is our home. Go and stay there and recoup and fish. And, yeah. you know, so yeah, the outpouring when there's a, when there's a, you know, well, people will rise to the occasion. There's a bit of a, a stigma, I'll call it, around New Yorkers. How did you find the personality of what became your second home of those of that population? I think that that's not really true, but it's a way to categorize the unknown. Okay. I love that answer. We have personally found nothing but kindness and generosity when mm-hmm. we've traveled mm-hmm. in American cities and small towns and people that we've met even vacationing elsewhere. So that was never our personal experience, but there's a little bit of this assumption. Mm-hmm. And yes, they're they're completely different worlds in endless ways, but I imagine as you've described taking that upbringing with you would help mm-hmm. you attract the that style of person into your life no matter where you go. Right. And being open to people. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people think that you have to have this closed, don't make eye contact, don't, you know, and that's not the case. Yeah. Be open, be receptive, be kind, know your neighbors. I know all my neighbors. I still walk down that street even though my kids are long out of school and they'll, someone will stop me and say, oh, my son was with your son Max in third grade. Yeah, You know, like that's that's New York. And the coincidences, my girlfriend Anne, who's, who was at the time living in, Toronto when I was going to school in New York she came to visit me a few times that was an easy quick flight from Toronto Island to New York and she would come down and we were on a budget I'm a student and she's just newly working and she says to me do you know do you ever see Greg Brown and he was one of the basketball players that I mentioned was from Queens and I said no I haven't seen Greg since I moved here, because there are 11 million people. (laughs) And we're standing on the corner of Broadway and Spring, and we're standing there waiting for the light to change, and this car full of guys pulls up, and Greg Brown is in that car. (laughs) And he was just in with his buddies from Queens that day, you know, drove across the bridge, came into Manhattan, and Anne and I, who went to St. Evex with him, are standing on the street corner. The power of the universe. Yeah. The universe Bringing is Bringing it all together. Yeah. I want to ask you, Emmy, I want to take advantage of the opportunity of sitting here with you and your life experience. As two artists living under the same roof, Mike and I, and the experience and exposure that you've had to such a creative life, the people that you've met, the places that you've visited, how do you think pursuing a career for us living in Nova Scotia would compare to if we were to live elsewhere in the world or if that is kind of irrelevant this day and age? I think social media makes it irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I think that you can make as big a splash or as small a splash as you want just by, you know, being aware of what's going on in the world. Like, that's really, I think, the key. Like, 
every everything is global travel, global everything. There's nothing like, you know, my cousin's in Sweden and he was saying he'll order the book. And I said, How, do you want me to send you one? And he said, we have Amazon. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, wow, do you? Like, I was not even aware there's Amazon Europe. Mm. I shouldn't. I should have known that. I know there's Amazon UK. But I hadn't thought about the fact that he's in Sweden and he's just going to go on the same looking site that I'm on. Yeah. So I think that anything, it doesn't matter where you are. You know, you could be in Alaska, you could be on a on a little island, you know, off the coast of Nova Scotia. Yeah. And as long as technology keeps up and you're, you know, well-read and well-versed on what's going on in the world, I think that your stuff can be out there because it doesn't really matter where someone is. I don't have to be sitting here. I mean, I could be sitting in New York having the same yes. conversation and nobody would know the difference. In fact, I am in New York right now. Mm. I'm not here with mm. you. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's yeah, that's a great point. What advice would you give to people to to live a fulfilling life because you've had this amazing life and I I assume that you feel that you you're fulfilled with everything. You've had amazing people in your life. You have a loving family. What's what's the key to to enjoying this big mess of things that we call living? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is to embrace change. Don't be afraid to change. If you yeah. if you don't like where you live, find a better place, make it happen. Oh, I don't have enough money. Oh, I don't have this. Then save your money and go and try it. And nothing, no harm, no foul. If you don't like it, come back. I think that when my husband died, it really showed me that you will recover from whatever trauma. You will, time will heal to a certain extent, but you have to be open to change and open to the new possibility because it's not your comfort zone. You have to step outside that. It's not maybe what you're familiar with. And if it's not working, then change it. No one is going to change it for you. You have to do it for yourself. So if you want to sit around and complain and bitch and moan, things aren't good. No one cares. No one's going to help yeah. you. This is your problem. You need to change it. And there are a ton of opportunities. Like there, it's not, money should not be what keeps a person from going to a new place. You can go to a new place and work on a farm. My daughter wanted to get out of New York she applied online and was hired as a laborer at a vegan place in Vermont for a month. She went and picked vegetables and did things like that for a month, had a great experience, made a little money, not a lot of money, made a little money, had her room and board, and then she did it in Hawaii and had that great experience while the volcano erupted and her shoes melted because she was standing too close. Mm. But she had that experience and she didn't have the money. She, she just made it happen and recently went back to Vermont. They had a little reunion of all the workers. And they said, come back to the farm. And it's like a lifetime experience for her. She's 25. She's been all over the world. And she makes these things happen. So, yeah. you know, you can make things happen. And what the worst thing that can happen is you come home. And that's okay. You had an experience. That's right. Yeah, so change is good. Like, it, it is. The experience element can be underestimated. Yeah. That's where we found so much of our joy and growth. You yeah. have to you have to be uncomfortable sometimes. You do. It takes courage to make change. 
Right. Uh, but it, it's always rewarding, we found. Yeah. yeah. And, and like a negative isn't always a negative. Like when you get a little distance from something, you know, things in my life couldn't have happened, you know, unless something bad had happened. You know, like I would not have a family, a birth family, if I hadn't lost my husband. It's unfortunate I lost my husband. It, you know, lots of people lose their life partners. But I didn't just sit around and moan about it and still be there crying because I could be easily. Oh, poor you, poor you. I looked for my birth family. I started writing. I changed jobs. You know, like I moved forward instead of just being stuck in my comfort zone, yeah. in my place where I love living. I walked outside every day. I love it. I had a routine. I could be still doing that and it would be fine. But there would have been zero change, whereas this is a whole 180-degree change for me to be in Cape Breton. And most people that know me never thought that I would ever be back there. I'm back there, and I'm happy. But New York's still, you know, my love, and, and I will go back frequently. I'm back in August, and I'll be back many times. But, um, but yeah, I have new experiences to live in Cape Breton. You're on a new adventure. A new adventure, yeah. Well, we're so glad oh. you could be here with us. Tell yeah. us your amazing story and uh, talk about your book, which, where can people find? Yeah, so Reverse Ripples um, started off, as I mentioned, 18 degrees north, because that is the geography. Um, and that's another thing. People really don't even think about things like that. New York City's 41 degrees north, you know, so... Um, it made me think about, you know, where we are in the world. 18 degrees north is pretty close to the equator. Mm -hmm. It's hot there. So um, Reverse Ripples is on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Um, ask local bookstores. If they don't have it, they can order it. I know the ones in Sydney on Paper Books is, is ordering the books. And I'm at the library in Sydney on Wednesday night next week. Um, so hopefully they'll have a couple copies too. It's a nice read. I like the story a lot. And um, I really had fun writing it, and the magic of bioluminescence is very near and dear to me, and it's real. And if anyone takes anything from the book, I hope they'll understand that that part of it's real, and they'll get to experience that in their lifetime. Having spent this time with you, I, I truly can't wait to read the book, but I'm I'm genuinely just grateful to have met you today. I feel quite emotional. You just meet somebody sometimes, and feel love for them like I I just am so happy that we get to spend this time together mm -hmm. you're one of those people that I know and hope to stay connected with and just Absolutely. see you as such a an, an inspiration and role model for oh, thank you dreams so uh, thank you for making an effort to be with us in person oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> even though we could have called in through zoom this is just so much special so much more special and Wish thank you, you the best thank of you luck. both. It's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, thanks for being you. You're you're doing amazing things and gonna inspire a lot of people oh, along the way. You. So thank yeah, you. thanks. It's been great. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Good. Lots of laughs. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, so book reading will be actually the day that this podcast airs mm -hmm. at the Sydney Library, right? Yeah. And uh, it's also played on radio station in Cape Breton. So. All of those listeners at CBFM will be in for a treat with a, a hometown author. Yeah, thank you. Thank Very you good. so much, guys. Cheers, folks. Hello, everybody. What's going on? We're back. And uh, I tried to whistle. 
Yeah, very good. Yeah. Very good whistler. I'm better now. I couldn't whistle for a long time. Not that I really can now, but if I suck in air, I get a little noise. You sound like a, a bird. Yes, I can do bird calls now. Can you whistle like uh, an actual melody? Like do Life is a Highway or something? <laughs> Pretty good. It was recognizable. Yeah, not bad. Mm-hmm. So, you whistle. You do Life is a Highway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing too much now. Uh, <laughs> a lot of air. That's a little better than mine. But yeah, I can do it from the side without air. Listen to the audience go wild. I think they're I think they were more impressed by my version. <laughs> my abstract you're version. Like a, <laughs> you keep very strong notes. You don't waver them at all. I just don't have that control, I suppose. I think when I was a kid I could whistle. I had really crooked teeth. I often describe it as somebody who just took a handful of teeth and threw them at my face is what I looked like till I was maybe sixteen or seventeen after 18 years of braces. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> years and years of braces. And after that, I got my braces off, I couldn't whistle anymore. Man, that's like... <sighs> Tragic the, story. That's the it? opposite of the movie Rookie of the Year. He, uh, Did he have braces? And then well, he was good at baseball Yeah, or but he breaks his arm and he puts a, gets a cast put on. When he takes it off, he can pitch as good as any world-class pitcher. Oh, yeah. I can bite an apple pretty well now, though. But you lost a skill. He gained a skill. Yes. Yeah. We could make a movie about you. <laughs> and my braces. Yeah, you, you were this world-class whistler, mm-hmm. and then you, you got this procedure done, and then you couldn't whistle anymore, and you had to navigate life without the ability to whistle. I love that it must premise. Have been, must have been a pretty hard life growing up after you got those braces off it was it really i i mourn my whistling. like when you saw someone going by who was attractive what would you do like, i know i just had to smile and wave I, got no, I, got, I resorted to the wink and the gun actually yeah, yeah. or you could, you could just yell something yeah did you ever see that simpsons episode where lisa's teeth get out of hand she had the headgear <laughs> and the last clip is her with Almost a spike that goes through her chin. That's yeah. how her teeth progress. <laughs> I love that one. That was you. That's how I felt yeah. at 14. But well, teeth are good now, and yeah. life is good now. Uh, what do you? Anything you want to announce coming up? No, just uh, some shows coming up in July. But uh, we'll, we'll get to them. Just mm-hmm. working on a bunch of songs now, and working on. Uh, recording other people so good i have a virtual art show coming up this sunday on june 25th at two o'clock 2 p.m nova scotia time nice on facebook live going to show everybody togetherland so not everybody lives here and can see it and this is our way just to say hello for a little while on a sunday afternoon it's going to be fun yeah live from ingramport where the internet is good and the cell service is bad. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks everyone for another great hang this week. We're back at you next Wednesday and 
every yeah. Wednesday for the foreseeable future. Every Wednesday, buds, tune in, tell your friends, yeah, share, share this around. Word of mouth helps a lot, and it's free for you to do. You know, that's uh, that's the great thing about it. So yeah, tell your friends, and uh, we'll be back. Cheers. <laughs>